This has already been a meaningful service, and it's always good to, um, to be able to uh, consider and to remember together what God has done for us in effecting the salvation of those who make up the church, which is the household of faith. And the Lord's Supper is meaningful on many levels, as uh, Pastor Andrew already explained so well. Uh, it helps us remember Jesus as we, as we taste and as we're uh, tangibly reminded of the cost of our salvation, but it's also meaningful in that we celebrate together as the church. And so in that way, it's a time of communion with God. There's a, there's a vertical element to communion, and there's also a horizontal element as we uh, commune together as God's family. But the service this morning also has been meaningful as we've sung hymns out of a hymn book. That's not something we do regularly, and we're going to start doing that from time to time again, but it's a, it's a nice change of pace. So we get to sing some of those old hymns and look at music on a page and sing harmony and, and uh, do that together as an offering to the Lord. I just point those, both those things out because both those parts of the service help us really to prepare for this particular portion of God's Word that we're going to look at for the rest of our time together this morning. And so I invite you to turn to 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 to 16, just three short verses, but three uh, very power-packed and rich verses. Uh, In the last verse, we'll see especially what many scholars think is a very early Christian hymn. But this verse also helps us see the value of the church. This this passage helps us see the value of the church and, and helps us to see and to savor Jesus Christ. So 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 to 16. This is Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writing to Timothy, uh, whose remained is in the church of Ephesus there. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Our Father, we thank you for this, your word. There's just a few words that we've looked at this morning, but it is so rich in meaning and so valuable in helping us to see Jesus Christ again. Lord, we've tasted already. We've felt the sacrifice that that was made for us on our behalf. The fact that you sent your Son to this earth. But now we read this and we see this in words of who Jesus is, of all he came to do. And so we pray that you'd help us to see Christ in, in deeper and more glorious ways as a result of our time together this morning. And help us also to see the value of your church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've been with us for any part of this series, you'll recognize these verses. Uh, we've been pointing ahead to them uh, as, uh, as, as why Paul originally wrote this letter to Timothy. This is the purpose for which he wrote. He's giving instructions about how... Uh, he's giving instructions really about church conduct about how one ought to behave in the church. And we've seen some practical instructions just before this in in the kinds of people that ought to be elders, 
Uh, those who we said last week are servant leaders and the kinds of people that ought to be deacons, those who are leading servants. Before that, it talks about what men and women ought to be like in the church, in the context of the church. And so now we come to that statement itself. Uh, Paul kind of, in the, in the scope of the letter, sort of takes a time out here and, and, and inserts some personal words to Timothy before he goes on to the next part of his letter and to the next part of the instructions for the church. But he says to Timothy that he wants to join him in, in Ephesus at some point down the road. And he says, but in case I don't get there right away, Timothy, here's what you, here's what you need to know in order to set things straight in the church there. And so there's a, there's a sense in which Timothy is speaking with the authority of Paul. And he would probably need to go back and say, this is Paul telling me this, as the church maybe um, pushes back a little bit. But in giving this little personal word, Paul says some really amazing things about that, uh, that God-created entity that is the church. And, what, and that's really what we want to look at this morning. For those of you that like outlines, he essentially hits on two things. He talks about the character of the church and the confession of the church. And in doing so, he, he really presents for us here a bare-bones summary of what a church does. It upholds the truth, and it proclaims Christ. That's it. A church is, is more than that, but it can never be less than that. It upholds the truth, and it proclaims Christ. So let's start by taking a closer look, right from the end of verse 15, at, first of all, the character of a church. What is the foundational characteristic that marks a church? Well, Paul describes the church here as the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. That, that little description packs a lot of punch. It's a great description of the church. And so I just want to take that apart a little bit. First, we see the analogy again that we've been seeing throughout this chapter. It's that the church is a household of God or God's household. And so, right away, you get the sense that there's a, there's a family kind of image that should come into our minds when we think about the church. The church is God's family. And Christians, together, all of us together, make up the children of God. John 1, verse 12 says, To all who did receive Jesus, all who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so if you're a Christian, you, along with every other Christian, make up God's household, God's universal, God's global church. Ephesians 2 verse 19 says, So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, now that you're believers, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And so there's a sense in which this is a universal church, but Paul is talking here to a specific local church. That church... Those believers there in Ephesus are a household of God. This church, these believers here in Wetaskiwin, is a household of God. We are God's family. And as we gather, as we come together, we function as God's household. So because it's God's household, we have to behave and conduct ourselves in a way that God wants us to. You can think of it this way, as God, in this household, is the one who gets to make the household rules. We take our cues from him. 
We don't have the freedom to just make things up as we go. So for instance, we saw up in verses 1 to 13 that God has in his household certain kinds of people that he wants to manage his household and certain kinds of people to serve as his household servants. He's looking for certain kinds of characteristics. And so we look to God for our cues. And really, why would we ever want to look anywhere else? This is God we're talking about. This is God, and God is good. God is for his people. He's always doing what is good for his people. And God sent his son in order to purchase the church with his own blood, we learn in Acts 20, in order to form local churches made up of his children all over the, all over the globe, all over the world. We belong to God and we function in his household. And really, it's an amazing privilege to be part of the household of God, which is the church. When we come to understand this about the church, things really start to come together in our understanding about how to live as Christians in that time until we wait for Jesus to come again, that in-between time. We become believers and because we're believers, we're going to see Christ again. He's going to come for his church. But, but how do we behave in the meantime? Well, we just need to understand that we are the household of God, that we function in his household, and that helps. As God's children, we function as God's household and in God's household. And, especially, and that's especially true if we want to make it through all the landmines that dot the landscape of the world. We do need to get out there into the world, And we are out in the world, but we need to know that we can always come back into the household where there's safety, where there's refuge. And that where is really not a place, it's people. We find safety when we are with God's people. That's especially true on the Lord's Day when we all get together, but it's also true in your day-to-day lives. When you're tempted, you should know that you can always find a member of God's household to help you. You should know in the words of the game show that you can always call a friend. When you're overwhelmed with grief or with a trial or with a decision that's coming up, you should know that you can always run to a person in God's household for a a godly perspective or for God-inspired advice or maybe even for a God-shaped hug and encouragement. Recognizing the value and the indispensability of the local church as the household of God is so important for your Christian life. Understanding this and living this out can actually be a real aha moment in the trajectory of your life as a growing Christian. You need the church. Don't try to make it without the church. While it's not only the household of God, Paul calls it the church of the living God. When God's people come together, God is alive there, amongst his people. God is alive here as we gather together. God has always dwelt with his people. That's where God is. In the Old Testament, that was marked uh, by a tabernacle, and then a temple, where God's presence was seen as traveling with Israel as they traveled through the promised land, the tabernacle, and then they formed a more permanent structure of the temple, and again, This was seen as the place where God was, where they could meet with God. 
And the Old Testament would, also, would always uh, contrast the living God with the dead idols of pagan worship. God is living. This God that we serve is alive. But in the New Testament, the place where God dwelt was, you could say it was replaced with the people in whom God dwells. And, and so once we get to the New Testament, it's not so much about a place, it's about people. Yet the idea of the living God being there continued. So a place like 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16 says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Where Christians are, God dwells. Or Ephesians 2, verse 22, In him you also are being dwelt are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so God is alive in each of us, individually as believers, but when the people of God come together, just think about this, if God is in each of us as believers, what happens when we all come together? Now, when the people of God come together, the living God and the creator of the universe is with us exponentially. His presence is multiplied in the gathering of his people. We are the church of the living God. Again, it's so important that we, that we grab a hold of this in our minds. This is why it's so important that we meet together on the Lord's Day. It's because we encounter in our gathering the living God. And then we have the third description of the church there at the end of verse 15. It's the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Even those words passing out from my lips brings an image of strength and support and steadfastness and integrity and immovability, certain unshakableness, if that's a word. During the time that this letter was written, there was a huge uh, pagan temple in the, in the city of the church that this was written, there, written to there in Ephesus where people could go and worship the goddess Diana. It's possible that Paul might have been thinking of that when he gave this particular image to the church. That temple was a glorious and, and, and majestic and, and very glossy structure that had over a hundred pillars. And those pillars held up a glittering and shiny marble roof. You could see it from long distance away, especially as the sun shone out and, and, uh, and it reflected. And so these pillars held up the roof and the buttress which is the foundation held up the pillars and so this is how paul pictures the church but he doesn't so much picture the pillar and buttress supporting the church or the structure he says the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth in other words the truth produces the church and by the way, it's not the other way around. This does not say that the church produces the truth as, as one particular church tradition does. So the upshot of that is that the church must be a place that upholds the truth. The church must be a place that upholds the truth. and The, the church is a place where truth will or should be found. And in our world, in the culture that we live in, which is quickly becoming a to say it kindly, a post-Christian culture. In the culture that we live in, we desperately need a place where we can find truth. Do we not? 
We live in a time of mass confusion as to what the truth is. This was made even more clear to me the other day as I read a couple of things in the morning. I usually try to catch up on a few things that are going on out there. And I read one document and one article. Someone in our church drew my attention to the document. It really uh, wasn't that surprising of a document in our present moral climate. But when I read it, it was shocking. And, and I only made it to the table of contents. <laughs> it was actually a, what was it, a 60-some page document or 30-some page? And it was in multiple pages anyways. But I couldn't even get that far before I had to stop and take a breath. But it just highlighted how a certain agenda, even though that agenda makes absolutely no sense if any person would think it all the way through, is being forced into the public square. And it's gaining traction by intentionally targeting children as the way, to bring, uh, the way to bring that agenda into the mainstream. When this kind of confusion is being propagated in the very places where children are supposedly learning, where can the people of God find the truth? Well, like I said, that document is not especially surprising. I suppose we can't expect our culture to be the pillar and buttress of the truth. But what really muddies things up is when so-called evangelicalism adds to the confusion. The article that I read that same morning came from a popular evangelical magazine. It was the culture article for, that, uh, for this fall's edition of that magazine. And in it, they were talking about swearing, language. It was titled, Foul-Mouthed and Faithful. Even those two things... <laughs> And the subtitle was, so it was foul-mouthed and faithful, why are Christians swearing so much lately? I don't know what circles this person was running in, but anyways, so I read that and thought, okay, well, well surely they're going to show here that having a foul mouth, or how having a foul mouth is inconsistent with professing to be a believer. It, it's a sin that must be repented of. Surely that, this is what they're going to talk about. But instead, the article was almost an inquiry on whether swearing is really all that bad. One person said it's all part of, I quote, the reshaping and coarsening of culture. At another point, they wondered whether cussing Christians are just exploring the limits of Christian freedom. And in line with that, one person wondered whether legalism is often the reason why people don't swear. Now, by that point, I was just shaking my, my head and saying, huh? Like, really? Am I really reading this? And then this topped it off. When the writer asked, is cussing a sin? The answer, and this came from a professor at what was at least one time, maybe it still is, a, a, a Baptist liberal arts university in Ontario. He said, is cussing a sin? He said, I think it can be very situational. So it depends. And that pretty much described the whole article. It gave all these wishy-washy questions with, without ever coming up with an answer. But here's what was missing in the entire article. There was not even one reference to the Bible. Not one. Where is there any interaction with the truth? One would think that the flagship evangelical magazine in our country would at least go to this true source of the truth to find an answer to their questions, to their inquiry. But no. Listen, the only thing I'm going to say about that is that this is not helpful for us. 
What we don't need in these times is fuzzy answers to ethical questions, especially questions that are addressed in the Bible. It's not like there's no clear answer to this. What Christians do need is someone to uphold the truth. We need a go-to place where we can get clear answers in confusing times. We need something rock solid in our day. What we need is churches that are committed to upholding the truth of God's word. The church is the pillar and the support of the truth. I pray that this church would be a place where you will hear the truth. I hope that you can come here for refuge from the world, being confident that this is a place where we will uphold the truth of God's word. You don't need more opinions that are not grounded in Scripture. You for sure don't even need my opinion. You don't need speculations and vain discussions as it talks about in in chapter 1. You don't need ambiguity. That's almost held up as a value these days. It's good to be ambiguous. You don't need that. You need clear answers. This needs to be a place where you will uh, hear the truth from God himself as it comes to us from his word. So we want to take that responsibility and that stewardship from God very seriously. I pray that this local church would continue to be a pillar and buttress of the truth as it has been throughout its history. So what is the main truth that the church should uphold? Well, that brings us to verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. So this is that truth that he's talking about in verse 15. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in spirit, that's how it should be translated, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That he is pointing, obviously, to Jesus. The main truth that we should uphold has to do with the person and the work of Jesus Christ. If the church's character is to be a place where the truth is upheld, the church's confession is to proclaim Jesus Christ. You see that there in this hymn. It's all about Jesus. Uh, There's another hymn, which didn't sing this morning, called The Church's One Foundation. I figured since we had hymns going, I may as well make the title of the sermon a hymn as well. The Church's One Foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. Jesus is the foundation. Jesus is our confession. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Again, this mystery comes up again here for Paul. Remember, this is a truth that was once hidden but is now revealed. It's a secret that isn't a secret anymore. And for us on this side of Jesus and on this side of the cross and on this side of the resurrection, the secret has been revealed, and it is Jesus himself. And basically here, what we have is the content of our faith. If we want to be godly, it's a mystery of godliness, we need to keep coming back to Jesus. Jesus reveals, literally, in person, what godliness means. If you want to know what it means to be godly, you just need to look to Jesus. He he is godliness defined. He is God himself. And so if we want to grow in godliness, we need to keep being reminded of who Jesus is. And who Jesus is, is crystallized in this little six-line hymn. He was manifested in the flesh. That's Christmas, isn't it? That's the incarnation. The the Son of God came to this earth and lived in the flesh. 
and he was vindicated in spirit. That can make, mean a few things, but I think that's talking really about the resurrection. God raised Jesus from the dead and vindicated his earthly life. He, he did not stay in the tomb. Jesus became our righteousness. He's vindicated and we are made righteous through his death and through his resurrection. He was seen by angels and proclaimed among the nations. These two lines say that he has witnesses in both heaven and earth to his ministry. Angels and nations. The the angels were there during all the major parts of his life, whether it was his birth, whether it was his temptations, whether it was his baptism, whether it was his uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane just before he went to the cross, there was angels there, uh, in the resurrection and at his ascension. All the major points of his life, there was angels that witnessed this. And now, even though his ministry was mainly in Israel, he has been proclaimed to all nations. So it's an expansive witness that Jesus has. He's been believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This talks about how he's been received. People in the world received him, and then heaven received him back. So he's gone from heaven to earth and back up to heaven again. It's this Jesus the whole of Jesus' life and ministry and exaltation that makes up the mystery of godliness, that makes up the content of the truth that every church must uphold. Everything has to revolve around Jesus. He is the core of what we must preach and teach. When people look for truth, when people come to our church, they have to be presented with Jesus. Jesus many times confronted with Jesus. If they come here and then leave and have only heard better life strategies without hearing the good news about Jesus, we have not upheld the truth. That is not a church, according to this definition. The church's responsibility is to exalt Christ and to worship Christ and to preach Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as servants for his sake. So, whenever we come to the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth, we ought to find truth there. And we ought to find Christ there. Whenever someone faces circumstances in their lives or questions in their lives or struggles in their lives, by God's grace, they can come to the people of God, the household of God, and they will be pointed to Jesus. Oh, the church is not perfect. church has not yet been redeemed. Sin is still present with us, part of our lives. But they should be able to at least find truth there and find Christ there. They'll be pointed to Jesus. And really, that's the only place they can go because Jesus is the answer for all of our issues. Whether we're weak, the answer is Jesus. Jesus is the answer for those who are suffering. Jesus is the answer for those who are confused. And most of all, Jesus is the answer for everyone who is lost and blind and dead and is without Christ. We are the church of the living God. We confess Jesus Christ That is who we are. And that is who we must be by God's grace. Let's bow together in prayer.
Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for a great time spent together worshiping you, honoring you, remembering your, the sacrifice of your Son, the great gift of salvation. We thank you for the church. We thank you for these people that are sitting right around us that we can call our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And we thank you that together we are all part of your household. We're grateful that you are living and that you are present with us here this morning as the church gathers. This is the church of the living God. We pray, our Father, that we would truly strive to be a church that is founded and, and that is vitalized and that is energized by the one who is the way and the truth and the life, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. It's him we love. It is him we adore. It is him we proclaim. And it is in his name that we pray these things. And now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.